Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning. On the, It's a beautiful morning up here in Fort Collins. The sun is shining. That wind has died down. We got a lot of outdoor stuff to talk about. Um, we're going to be kind of all over the place today. We're still going to talk a lot of ice fishing because that's the real hot topic right now. But we're going to talk some fly fishing, too, with folks from Blue Quill Angler. We're going to talk about eagles and bats. How about that being opposite ends of the spectrum today? Where you can go see them and how to interact with them. That'll be kind of fun. And Chad Lachance is going to join us in the um, second hour. And he's going to talk to us about how to pick out a boat. With boating season, will be on us quicker than we think. They're having kind of a quasi-boat show at the dealers around uh, the Denver area this uh the front range area this uh, weekend, so we'll, we'll we'll pick up a little bit on that, and we just have a lot to cover. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. A lot of times we preview what we're going to do on the show here, and then uh, we also I post a lot of the podcasts from the interviews we do on the show on our Facebook and our YouTube channel. Those of you into ice fishing, we have so much ice fishing on our YouTube channel that was filmed right here in Colorado that will help you out. And we have fly fishing, we have conventional fishing, walleye fishing, bass fishing. It's about 150 episodes on our YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. So Facebook is Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, and YouTube is The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. But right now, let's go right to the phones. And joining us from the Blue Quill Angler is Chris Steinbeck. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning, Terry. How are you? You know, I'm doing well, and I'm looking out the window and after that wind that blew especially, a lot of the front range ice kind of got, well, I'm going to talk about that later in the show, but it, it kind of, the conditions changed and there's some safety factors there. But on the flip side of the fly fishing, that warm wind and now a couple warmer days and, you know, even any winter, there are just fly fishing opportunities in Colorado. You really shouldn't put the long rods away in the winter, should you? No, the wintertime offers fantastic fly fishing. Um, and a lot of times, many of our guides in our shop and other people in the industry, we love fishing in the wintertime. It's a chance to get away from some of the crowds and standing in a river. And even when the weather gets a little bad and starts snowing a little bit, there's something so peaceful just about being on the water. Well, I shared a story with you when we were talking earlier in the week how one time on the Big Thompson, I went uh, fishing. I was actually filming a television show. It had been 20 below the weekend before, and it warmed up to above zero, 20 above, something like that. I was on the tailwater stretch of the Big Thompson, and the fish were just stacked in one hole. And Well, there was more than one hole, but there would be virtually like hundreds of fish in a hole. I would never have had to take a step because even when you caught a fish, you didn't spook them because there were so many of them. But we did move up and down the river. But th- those phenomena do happen quite common in the winter, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. And um, what happens is in the wintertime, those fish, their metabolism slows down, so they're not eating every day. And so they're not going to be sitting in really fast currents. So a lot of times in the winter months, our tactics change from where we fish in the river where, you know, for the next couple, two, three months, we're really going to be focusing on the slower, the deeper water. And just like what you were talking about in your story, there's times in those deeper pockets where those fish will pot up and they'll stack in there pretty hard. Um, 
And, you know, that's generally a pretty good rule of thumb in the wintertime is try to find the slower, the deeper water. And that goes for most every river you fish here in Colorado. Well, let's talk about where you're hearing about the fishing, and then let's maybe get into some presentations. And then I want to talk a little fly tying with you. So, first of all, what are you hearing around the state as far as uh, opportunities? Yeah, we actually have some really good fishing going on right now. Um, we've heard really, really strong reports out of Silverthorne on the Blue River. Um, I know that river was uh, recently stocked, and there's some beautiful big fish in there. Uh, Silverthorn on the Blue River, always a great, reliable winter fishery. Um, in terms of the South Platte, the flows are starting to increase a little bit higher up in the drainage. And so, like the Dream Stream, you're sitting at about 115 CFS, which is a great wintertime flow. And anglers going out there, uh, definitely going to find some great fish in there. Obviously, South Park, it's uh, a little exposed. And so, you want to pick a good weather day and not freeze out there. Um, but one of the stronger reports we've been hearing as well is up in 11 mile Canyon In 11 mile Canyon, such a beautiful Canyon, great place to fish the South Platte. Um, that fish in the flows are about 150 cubic feet per second. And that is awesome right now. And so I'd highly recommend there, um, lower down on the drainage below Cheeseman. As you're talking Cheeseman Canyon, the Deckers area. Those flows are still really low. Those flows drop down to about 50 cubic feet per second. And so the fishing is going to be, you'll find really good fish, but it's not going to be as productive as it would be if you go up to like the Dream Stream or 11 Mile Canyon or even right now up on the Blue River. So how do you approach these? Do you approach those different rivers differently because they're maybe a little different water temperature, a little different flow, or do you have kind of a uh, mindset when you approach these winter tailwaters that you start with? Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Terry. So um, traditionally, we have a mindset in the wintertime where, you know, in terms of the bugs that are active in the water where the fish are keying in on, it's really down to one species called a midge. And a midge is just a really small insect. And so um, the flies we're generally thrown in the wintertime are really small midges, um, Generally, rivers with really low flows, you want to go a little small on your flies. And I'm talking size 22s and 24s, which are tiny. Um, and blood midges. Blood midges are just a staple in the wintertime. Um, they stand out a little bit. You know, obviously, big fan of red colors in the water, and um, blood midges are great. And so typically, that's our tactics. Uh, we try to go smaller. And that's whether you're on the South Platte or the Blue or any other river here or tailwater in Colorado. Right now, those fish are pretty much keying in on those little small midges. But having now, are you said all that, go ahead. No, sorry about that, Terry. But having said that, it's always a great idea, too, to think outside the box. And so sometimes drifting a leech right now or a big bug or slowly stripping a streamer off the bottom, something that that you know you don't want to go too fast with your retrieve but something just a little different that could really um spice up your fishing day and get you into a couple more fish well i couldn't agree more because i think when you go like to that streamer especially you're getting that reaction bite you know they're feeding on the bugs but sometimes no matter what the conditions this is true in fly fishing and in conventional fishing sometimes if the fishing is slow going to a bigger faster presentation sometimes just gets a reaction it's like they don't have time to think about it they just react and that can be quite effective a lot of times um a fly fisherman that i've had the privilege of fishing with quite a bit when he fishes these uh 
these uh, under a, under an indicator, which I assume is what you're yeah. doing with these midges. Um, he, yeah. he has gotten away from using weight. He uses all tungsten flies, and if he has to add one heavier fly to get it down, he just likes, because it's so slow in the winter, to keep it natural. How do you approach that? I think that's a great, great tactic right there. Um, you know, a lot of times we're throwing, just like you said, nymphs under an indicator, and if you have too heavy of a weight, your flies don't drift naturally down the river with the current. In this time of year, it is so imperative to try to get your flies going the same speed. And so just like the guy you were mentioning, sometimes if you have too much of a weight or a split shot on there, this time of year when you're focusing on fishing that really slow water, that's almost too much. And so if you drop that weight down, your flies are a little bit more of a free drift or a natural presentation to the fish, and they'll respond way more to that. Now let's switch gears a little bit. A lot of people just don't really want to brave the cold to get out fly fishing, and that's fine. And fly fishing has a, an aspect to it that gives you lots to do in the winter, and that's fly tying. Are you seeing a lot of guys coming in? Or, uh, with all the new people into fishing, are you seeing a lot of new fly tires? Oh, it, it, we are. And it's so much fun here at the shop to talk about it with the new people getting into it. Um, we're starting to run a lot of our classes right now where we teach a lot of people how to fly tie. Um, and it is it's just a fun way to pass time, great way to build your box, and it, um, and it really gives people who fly fish a fundamental understanding of the bugs they're trying to represent when they fish. And so there's a lot of good things that come from fly tying, and, and this is the season for it right now. Well, you know, you get that, that kind of that, that feeling of, I tied this fly, and then I went and caught a fish on it, and that's pretty neat, especially if you may be struggling. Um, normally, I go through with you when we talk about beginning fly fishing, about the equipment, but we've covered that. We can mention it again, but I want to take a different tack. Somebody comes in, they're new to fly tying. Do you recommend any particular flies that they start with that maybe get them down the path to both getting a little confidence and also understanding some of the different techniques in tying? Yeah, yeah, so I think... Um, if you really start getting into fly tying, you want to focus on trying to tie flies that you think you're going to fish. Um, and one of the great patterns to really learn is called a pheasant tail. And a pheasant tail in our in fly fishing is a classic standard fly. been around for a long, long time, and it's always going to catch fish. But starting with a fly like a pheasant tail teaches you how to tie um, different proportions in the body and diff using different materials. And it's a good good fly to start off because then every other pattern after that um, is going to be relatively easy to tie. Now, how much does it cost if I want to get into tying, but I don't want to, I'm not sure how serious I'm going to be, but you and I both know that some of the biggest mistakes people make is they really buy discount equipment and it doesn't work right. Um, and it, it's just like buying an instrument. I play guitar and if you try to teach somebody on a really cheap, bad guitar, they get frustrated. So let's say that what do you think you need to spend and what do you need to get started? I think you could get a really quality setup with everything you need and getting you the materials to tie um, several different patterns. For We have a setup for it that goes right at about $100. It's got a great vise, comes with the materials, comes with hooks to tie on. Um, and we do a lot of, we piece together a lot of kits for people too, depending on the flies that they really want to focus on tying. And so generally speaking, Terry, you're about 100 to $125 will get you a setup that's really good, something that's never going to become obsolete on you and um, start a hobby that's 
super addicting. Oh, yeah, it is. It really is. Um, last question. What? Tell me what you've got going on for guide trips and classes. Uh, so, yeah, so we, we're still running our guide trips right now. We run a discounted rate all winter long. Um, we do both public waters all over the South Platte and up north Colorado and the Blue River. Um, we do private water guide trips right now, too. We uh, have some sweet new leases outside of Bailey that are getting incredible, incredible reviews. Um, and then we're running our fly time program, um, usually about weekly classes on Wednesday nights. And, um, and then we start our introduction program where we start getting people into fishing and start getting them in the water again in about the end of March. All right. If people need to find you, Chris, where do they find you? How do they find Blue Quill Angler? You, you can find us on our website at www.bluequillangler.com or give us a call up here at the shop. Number is 303-674-4700. And you could call with questions on fly tying or fishing reports or anything we can do to help you out and help get you into fish. Give us a call. It's what we're here for. All right, my friend, we've got to run, but thank you so much for joining us. As always, great information, Chris. Hey, Terry, thank you so much. You have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. You bet. That's uh, Chris Steinbeck from the Blue Quill Angler. Great people. You know, Pat Dorsey's up there. You just know those people. Just quality, quality people who will take care of you. If you're looking for a guide trip or a class, might be a great place to start. Just go to bluequillangler.com. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to talk about bats. And do you have to worry about bats and COVID? That and so much more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. I tell you what, if you're an outdoor enthusiast, Jack's stores up and down the front range have everything you need and the knowledgeable associates in the stores to help you pick out the right equipment. So stop by and try one. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Dan Newbaum. Good morning, Dan. Morning, Terry. Thanks for having me on. Well, you know, I'm, I appreciate you coming on. You know, there's this thing going around that called COVID, and I think unless you live in a cave, you would probably uh, it'd be hard-pressed to say you haven't heard about it. And, of course, we hear about what happened with bats over in Asia, and maybe it started there. Do we, we have a substantial bat population in Colorado. Do we have anything to worry about, about contracting COVID from bats? That's a great question, Terry, and the answer is definitively no. None of the bats in North America carry COVID, and so there's really nothing to worry about there. It is a big concern uh, for us um, with bats being persecuted around the world because of this misunderstanding, and so we really want to make that clear that no North American bats carry COVID, and they actually do have a lot of benefits for us, like eating a lot of agricultural pests. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about where they fit into the ecosystem in a little bit. But one of the things, bats, there is a disease, though, that is threatening bats everywhere in the country. And that's called white nose syndrome, I think it's called. And that's kind of a fungus. Tell us about that and how that's affecting bats. And is it affecting them in Colorado? Right. So white nose uh, syndrome is caused by a fungus that was accidentally introduced into North America back in about 2006. And the fungus grows on the bats while they're in that deep sleep or, or uh, torpor 
in in hibernation. So in the middle of winter, when the bats are kind of uh, they've turned off their immune systems and they're real vulnerable to uh, things like uh, this fungus. And so far, we have not detected the fungus in Colorado, but we have de- it has been detected in a lot of the surrounding states like Wyoming, Nebraska, Oklahoma. And so we are concerned that it could be here uh, any winter. Is there any speculation as to why we've been spared so far? Is it their habits are different here, or have we just been fortunate? That's an excellent question. And basically what we think may be going on is that the ecology or the way our bats in the western part of the United States live is slightly different than those eastern bats that are being affected so badly. Uh, A lot of our bat species are likely to be uh, roosting in places like rock crevices and cliff faces rather than the caves that we all kind of think about for bats. So if they're using some of these different sites, then that might actually uh, influence the ability of the animals themselves to spread the fungus back and forth. Uh, If they're roosting alone, then it's a lot more likely that they won't get exposed to it. And so even if the disease shows up, it might actually move more slowly throughout the state and throughout the western United States. Now, we do have these big caves down in parts of Colorado that you get the huge flyouts at certain times of the years. Are those migrating bats that don't hibernate here, or do they hibernate different? Yeah, so you make a good point there. You know, some of the roosts that our bats in Colorado use, they, they are different between the winter and the summer. And in a, a place like a, a big uh, summer population down in the San Luis Valley, for example, uh, we have a migratory bat down there called the Mexican free-tailed bat, and it shows up for the summertime, uses that location, and then leaves for the winter. And then we have other species of bats in Colorado that stay right here year-round. They may use things like a tree snag or a rock during the summer, and then they'll move a short distance to another location, uh, say in a talus slope, where they crawl in and spend the winter there. So some of the species have different strategies. So if I come across a hibernating bat in the winter, um, should I leave it alone? Should I call somebody to get it removed? What should I do? You know, if it's in a location where it's uh, safe and it's out in, say, a wild setting, uh, we ask folks to just not disturb them, keep a a distance from them so that they don't um, awaken because that causes them to burn a lot of fat reserves. The most common places for that to probably occur would be, say, in a a cave where people are recreating. Um, And fortunately, because our bats are using other locations, uh, we don't get these disturbances a lot in the winter. If it's summertime, you know, and you have a bat in your house and and you're worried about it um, encountering, say, your pets or small children, then there are humane ways to um, evict the animals and have them move to a different location. Now, overall, bats, excuse me, bats are really an important part of the ecosystem. I have bats that fly around my yard at night all summer, and boy, do they eat the mosquitoes and keep them down. I'll be sitting in my hot tub, and the bats will be flying not very high above me, and I know they're eating those bugs. And so they are a helpful part of the ecosystem, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. You know, there's been some cool studies that looked at the amount of insects that uh, just a small colony of, say, 100 bats 
can eat over the course of a summer. And it ends up being metric tons of insects, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about how little animals could do that. But when they're out eating each night, they'll eat up to about half their body weight in insects. And so for agricultural communities, uh, these bats can actually do a really good job of helping reduce some of those pest insects or at least keeping them at tolerable levels. And that also includes some of the the speed of insect species that annoy the rest of us like uh, mosquitoes and things so they do play a, a vital role and an, a key point to make about bats is that they're chowing down on insects at night and so that's a whole different group of insects than what we know birds eat who are out during the day so so different roles no absolutely one quick last question and we're going to be out of time but do bats fit into the food chain for another animals or anybody anything that preys on them they do they are preyed upon by uh, raptors like owls in particular who come out at night uh, at some of the big colonies that group up in the summer like that one we were talking about in the San Luis Valley um, they'll have peregrines show up and try to, to pick them off each night for a quick snack and then occasionally we even have heard about reports of things like snakes that are able to access bats that, that will eat them. So they do provide a food resource for some animals, for sure. All right. Well, we're out of time. I think the message we really want to leave, though, is bats are part of our natural ecosystem here in Colorado, and there's no worries about COVID, right? That's exactly it, Terry. You nailed it. All right. Thanks for coming on. That's great information. It's always fun to learn about the different animals here in Colorado and hopefully put a few fears at ease. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's uh, Dan Newbaum from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And, uh, you know, there's just so many species in Colorado that we interact with. And on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, if you're outdoors, you're going to run into them. We try to keep you informed. By the way, if you like watching bald eagles, you want to stick around for our next segment because we're going to take you out to a place where at times they've had as many as 100 bald eagles out there. I don't think there's quite that many this year, but there is a bunch. So we're going to take you there. Um, all that and so much more. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. I've been doing time in a prison where the sun don't shine. Now you've got some toe tapping music, Kyle. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. We are brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Um, you know, they have a saying, if you need it for the outdoors, Jack's has it. Stop by one of their stores. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us from Bar Lake, one of our favorite contributors from Colorado Parks and Wildlife, Michelle Siebert. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? You know, I am doing fantastic, and we've had some great weather. You have an event coming up about the bald eagles, and I want to talk about that. But before we get to that, let's update people, because Bar Lake's gone through some, shall we say, ups and downs over the last year. What are the current conditions at the lake? First of all, any ice? Is there any ice fishing going on? Yeah, there is no ice fishing going on. We're filling this time of year. We started filling November 1st. We were quite low from um, our drought last this last summer. Um, so there is open water, and, and there's just not any really – um, good fishable um, ice for fishing. Now, what about the open water opportunities? Is the open water close enough to shore? Where I I know you have 
you usually get trout there. You have perch, you have panfish, you have a variety of species. Any open water, and is anybody taking advantage of that? You know, there is some open water down by the boat ramp. Um, We haven't had a lot of fishermen out, but, um, you know, today is supposed to be nice weather, so you never know. Yeah, and it's so easy to get to. Tell people where it's located. Yeah, so Bar Lake is just 25 minutes east of Denver, so we're a quick day trip. You can come out and try fishing. You can try our archery range. We have a wonderful nature center with lots of exhibits. Um, We have a a trail that goes all the way around the lake. It's 8.8 miles, so we're just a a quick day trip for everybody. And there's just so many activities uh, in addition to fishing and boating that you can do there in the summer. You mentioned your archery range. You actually have two. One of them you're redoing. Tell people about those. Yeah, so we have our standing range that's 10 to 100 yards, um, and it is open now. Our 3D range is closed um, for a little bit until right around March 1st because we uh, we have gotten um, brand-new 3D targets, and then we're also making an archery platform where you can shoot from a platform. So all of that is in construction right now, and in the spring, the 3D archery range will be amazing to open. Oh, and you know what? Um Nate Zielinski, who is a good friend of yours and myself, we harp all the time on the 3D ranges because a couple things, even on the standing range, people come and they shoot at 20 yards and they shoot at 50 yards, but they don't practice maybe 36 yards and they don't practice 27 yards. And so they really don't get a feel for some of the shots. But then when you get to the 3D range, you're kind of, you know, you're not just in a great position always. You you might be having to crouch or turn a little different because the animal is not always going to approach you or you approach it from the right angle. And then you get to see how your your arrow would have penetrated that animal. You may have hit the spot, but what if the angle of penetration is wrong? 3D ranges are so fantastic, and so many parks are putting in archery now, and having one at Bar Lake so close is just just phenomenal. So before we get to your, your event, what else can I do if I come to Bar Lake? Great picnic place, I'll bet. Yeah, we do have picnic areas. We have lots of trails, boardwalks. Um, we're known for our birding. We've had over 371 different bird species sighted at Bar Lake. We kind of say that we're the bed and breakfast for birds. Yeah, and then you have some uh, waterfall hunting opportunities too, right? We do. So we do have um, waterfall hunting. Um, we have 14 blinds that you can call or go to our website to reserve. We only um, hunt two days a week. Um, we did add a couple Sundays. Um, so you can, uh, we normally hunt Wednesday and Saturdays, but we added a couple Sundays. So we have that opportunity. And, you know, in the fall, we do have dove hunting stations as well, just for the month of September. Dove, did you say? Dove, yes. Yeah. Do people actually hit those or do they just use ammunition? Uh, well, they do hit some. I don't. <laughs> no, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's talk about though the real reason. Coming up February 6th, and of course you could come out any time for this, but the number of bald eagles you get at Bar Lake is just mind-blowing. I know you've had over 100 at times. What is the, What are the eagles looking like this year, and what's going on February 6th? So um, this year we've had a few less. You know, last year we had our record number that we counted 116 in one day. Um, we're seeing them anywhere from 30 to 40 a day. Um, and, you know, this is just a great time of year to see our wintering eagles. They don't really – our nesting pair won't start to nest till mid-February. But it's a great time to come out and take a hike. They like to sit on the edge of the ice and fish. So when you come out um, – 
the best place to park is the nature center go over the bridge and to the south in our wildlife refuge and then look out onto the ice it's just a great time and you know we started nine years ago we started a bald eagle festival to celebrate our winter eagles and so this year it's always the first saturday in february so february 6th um, is our bald eagle festival we'll have a live bald eagle presentation by nature's educators it's going to be outside so it's going to be um, safe in COVID restrictions, so it'll be outside every half hour from 10 to 1. And we have some guided hikes. We'll have crafts to go for kids and just being out on the trails and, and looking for those majestic birds. And that'll be a great opportunity. That's February 6th, but come out any day to see the eagles, right? Yeah, come out any day. You know, today the weather's supposed to be beautiful. It's um, quite a few people already here today, but just stop by the Nature Center and any of the staff can give you some helpful hints to find those bald eagles. Yeah, it was such a great resource so close to the um, the front range here, and there's so many opportunities there. Uh, it's just fantastic. You know, take a, a walk and look at the, the wildlife, which is a huge amount of birds there, and it's just it's just you're so close to town. You get a day like today. People need to, you know, people are getting outside because of COVID, and Bar Lake offers them that opportunity to get away from other people. There might be people there, but you can easily social distance. You're outdoors, and you can just enjoy this beautiful winter weather we get in Colorado at times. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. That's just you just run such a great place. Well, thank you, Terry. You have a wonderful day. You bet. That's Michelle Siebert from. Uh, Bar Lake State Park. You know, in the summer, you'll hear us talk about fishing. And a lot, of, a lot of winters, there can be pretty good ice fishing there. Now, they were concerned it was drawn down low last year because of the drought. And they thought they might get a fish kill, but they didn't. And they opened it up to, you know, uh, angling to no limits for a while, thinking they'd salvage those fish. But not that many fish came out of there. And I think as it returns this spring, because it didn't get the pressure this winter, or if we get a good cold spell and we get some fishable ice out there, there's still going to be some really good opportunities out at Bar Lake. And, of course, they'll begin stocking it with trout, and they'll be rebuilding any fishery they think is lacking. And it's so close to the metro area, 10 horsepower and under outboard, so if you have a big boat, you either have to run your electric or your kicker. But it's just a great place in canoes and kayaks. It's, it's wakeless. It's just one of my favorite spots. It's a great place to go. We're going to take a time out, and when we come back, J.R. Pierce from Colorado Clays is going to join us. Now, he usually comes on and talks shotgunning, but J.R. and I went out on the ice this last week and had a really great experience, and he wants to share, as a, as a fairly new person to ice fishing, he wants to share some of his thoughts on getting started ice fishing and how that trip went. All that and more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. On 104.3, The Fan. Tell me what is wrong, I'm Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. 65 years of serving the outdoor public. And by the way, they're going to join us in the next hour. And we're going to talk about the gear they have for beginning ice fishermen. Speaking of ice fishermen, joining us from Colorado Clays, um, you normally hear him come on and talk about shooting, but him and I had a great time out in the ice, so we're going to talk about that. It's J.R. Pierce. Good morning, J.R. Hey, good morning, Terry. You know, J.R., um, I give you a hard time, but you're a very accomplished angler. You do a lot of fishing. Uh, it's obvious when I spend time with you on the water, whether it's open water or ice, that you really understand 
fishing and presentations and and but you've kind of been you haven't really gotten into ice fishing yet you maybe dipped your toe a little bit but um, we set up a time to go out to a small lake you and I and really kind of go through the fundamentals of ice fishing and how to approach a lake and things like that and I thought a lot of great knowledge because it turned out to be a great learning trip didn't it yeah you know Terry that was just a great day on the ice and, and I must say, uh, it was a great learning experience for a novice ice fisherman like me. And I must say, uh, we did answer most of my questions and, you know, concerns about it and really corrected many of my misconceptions. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only person um, in that boat. Um, you have never really been out there, been in control of the electronics, seen things with the type of gear you had, and I, I think you might have me hooked now. Well, I'm kind of counting on that, so we're going to have more trips, and we're going to use your gear next time. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, you know, I want to I want to kind of go through a few points, you know, and I want to set the stage a little bit. So first of all, we started this trip in an area, and I'll tell you why we thought there would be fish in this area in a second. In an area we thought there would be fish, and we saw some on our electronics, got a couple to bite it was really not working well we made some moves trying to locate more fish really had trouble finding more active fish or even schools of fish we returned and used our electronics to work on our presentation and easily ended up catching a couple dozen or more fish so it was a great classic example of how you adjust and what you do and the first thing was homework this is a lake that it's a small lake that you and I had fished in a boat together before, and you also had some information from other anglers. And I think, JR, that any time, summer or winter, you go out, if you can do a little homework and get a little information going in, it really helps, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Terry, I think uh, <clears throat> homework is, is definitely important. And I think the homework that you and I did in the open water um, you know, just uh, learning a little bit about it definitely paid off on the ice as well. And, you know, and I have to say, Terry, you were talking about bouncing around and looking and seeing, um, you know, that was one of my misconceptions was that, you know, on an ice fishing trip, you're kind of tethered to a hole. Once you get there and unload everything and had to do this, you, you didn't have the mobility that we had. Uh, when we got there, you did say you were going to travel light, um, you had a sled that had all the room we needed, but not too much stuff. Uh, even had a seat on it. This blew me away. So, yeah, definitely homework, but then being able to move around and have the mobility, uh, traveling light the way you set us up was really the ticket to the day, I think. Well, I think it was, too. I think another thing, too, that we had tried to plan this trip for a week earlier, and the ice was a little sketchy. And so we went out there, we found really good safe ice, at least we felt it was, and we, we checked it. But what did you think about using the spud bar to check the ice? Well, uh, Terry, I can't say enough about, because um, that's another one of my concerns when I was going to be ice fishing was the ice um, and, and the safety, uh, you know, personal safety. And I, I will say, Terry, I did go watch one of your ice videos uh, prior to it, and, uh, you know, kind of watched how you use that bar and how you checked ice. And, uh, yeah, I felt much more comfortable because from the very beginning, uh, the first foot out, you started checking the ice, uh, went ahead and did test holes for thickness. And even that spud bar on top of all of that was great to punch a quick test hole for a look down. So 
Uh, yes, bud bar, first thing I'm going to buy, absolutely. Yeah. And that's but If you're going to fish the front range of Colorado, I just recommend that. That's the one tool that can keep you safe. And you're right, you, you don't even really need an auger when you're on, you know, just a few inches of ice because the spud bar can easily punch a hole. Speaking of augers, you know, you can spend a lot of money on power augers. And if you're going to go fish Lake Trout at Granby and the Pike at 11 Mile, you probably need some form of a power auger. And we're going to talk about that next hour with some of the other guests. But we took a six-inch hand auger, and I because you have one, but I brought mine. And I said, you know, for these quick outings on the front range, what a great way. How easy was it to drill a hole with that six-inch auger? Again, Terry, uh, two things on that. First of all, with us traveling light, because we did have to pull our stuff up a hill, so it, it took a ton of weight out of there. But, yeah, I was totally flabbergasted. My auger is still in the box. Um, now I can't wait to get it out. And I was surprised at how few cranks it took to get through a few inches of ice. Uh, another thing that I, I really did not realize, I've got bad shoulders, and I thought um, that was going to be a chore, but uh, nothing to it. I was very impressed with uh, how quick and easy uh, a really inexpensive hand auger will work, and I definitely the way I'm going to go. Yeah, and if you if you really get into it and you want to go after big fish on deep water up on top of the mountains where you get, you know, a foot or two of ice, then consider a power auger. At most times, I've owned one of each, and I'm looking at the electric ones. But, again, we'll talk about more about that next uh, next next hour. Let's kind of talk a little bit about the fishing. We went and we drilled. I probably started out drilling, I don't know, six or eight holes, and then you drilled some. But we started out, and t- talk about your experiencing experience using the electronics well i think that's probably the most amazing thing to me uh terry uh, and and, I, and i'll tell you what i, I always heard oh got to have the flasher or this that and i know some buddies have them but um you know until i looked at your unit which the screen actually has the same kind of visual appearance and the same feedback as the sonar on my boat and uh so i immediately could identify fish um, I could read the graph, and that was one of the things. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, and I don't know what the difference, what you would call that c- compared to the flasher because I've never done that, but I was able to actually see fish, see where they were, um, even drop presentations, watch them come up and look at that. And, uh, of course, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about adjusting the presentations, but I was just flabbergasted at how immediately – I was able to go from hole to hole and quickly find fish, uh, try and find some aggressive fish, and uh, it was so familiar to me based on, you know, the the unit that I have on my boat. I was immediately reading the graph, identifying fish from structure, from my bait, and, uh, yeah, that was probably one of the most incredible things out of our whole trip was um, showing me that version of a uh, a fish finder for ice fishing. Yeah, I know. In the past, I used the flasher. I still own two because they responded quicker, and the the LED or LCD screens that you see on typical boat-type depth finders didn't respond fast enough. But now they're so quick that you can take a Lowrance or a Humminbird or a Markham or whatever you have and get those full screens. And I think most anglers identify with those easier than a flasher-type presentation. And they really not only show if you fish are there, but also the mood they're in and how they're responding. And that prompted us to go back 
and change lures and watch the fish respond. Tell them how that works. Absolutely, Terry. So, uh, like you said, we were in several places. We did find some fish. And to start with, um, I could see my lure going down. I could work the lure, bring it up, watch the fish actually come up, take a look at it. A couple of them bumped into it but wouldn't take it. And what we learned was um, between changing our presentation and changing our baits that we were able to finally come up with a combination that would provoke the strikes and get us our fish. And one thing you told me, Terry, and I thought this was really, really uh, important about the, the unit we used, is you don't just have the instant um, a picture like a flasher does. You actually can see across the screen what was going on. So if I had a fish follow me, I could actually look over and see how high he would come into the column following that bait or how deep he was in the column to start with and have that little history. Um, and it was just amazing to me how we were able to take, find the fish, uh, find what they wanted and then capitalize on it and put several different species on the ice in a pretty short time. So it was very impressive. Now we have about two minutes left. I have two questions for you. <clears throat> One's about where your current location is at Colorado Clays, but the first is what's your general overall thoughts of ice fishing now? Uh, Terry, a general overall thoughts <laughs> versus where I was is that it's a whole different game than I realized. Um, I always thought it was just going to be this very slow trudging uh, cross your fingers for a bite thing. I now realize that it's basically open water fishing on the ice rather than in a boat, and, and that's really how I feel. And uh, you did show me that it doesn't take that much money to get into it. So, yes, I'm, I'm already shopping and uh, purchasing <laughs> items. Karen uh, said, uh, I bet he's bought stuff already, Karen said. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. the the yeah. other thing we didn't get much time to talk about was the flip-up style shelters that I like. They really give you mobility, don't they? No, and that one you have, it's, just, it's so compact. I like the footprint, very stable, yet plenty of room for everything you need, a built-in seat, and it only takes a moment to flip a shelter over yourself for weather, sun, whatever. Um, yeah, definitely the first thing I'm buying is something similar to that. All right, my friend. Uh, Normally you come on and talk to us about shooting at Colorado Clays. We will do that again next week. But if people are interested, if they've got a shotgun, rifle, or pistol, where would they find Colorado Clays, and how can they find you? All right. Well, we're just, we're just north of DIA, east of Brighton, 25-minute drive from downtown. Very easy drive. Uh, always go to the website, coloradoclays.com. Uh, check out what we have. Take the virtual tour. Or simply give us a call. And... Uh, Tell us what you're thinking, and we'll get you fixed up. That number is 303-659-7117. And I'll bet you'd be willing to talk some ice fishing if people stop by. You can bank on it, Terry. <laughs> All right, my friend. We'll talk to you next week. we got to get out again soon. Yep, sounds good, Terry. Thank you. You bet. We're going to take a quick time out, and we come back. Nate Zielinski is going to join us, and we're going to continue talking ice fish, both tournaments and techniques here on Terry Wicks from Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.